Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. I really believe that your values shape your beliefs, shape your thoughts, shape your words, shape your actions, shape your habits, which shape your reality. And if I want a better reality, I better start back here with the values. Like, what am I actually valuing in the world, which is creating my reality through that distinction I mentioned? We are all on a journey, and we all have a specific thing that we're after. And part of that journey is figuring out what that is. At least to me, like I believe that we're all here to do something important. It's whether we take on that call to action, that hero's journey, is what determines the course of our life. Because you have to be inspired, you have to conspire with the right people, and you have to have it transpire in real life. I just remember that being like, wow, like he took this painful moment that he experienced, and he's literally crawling around on a on a creeper, and he actually. Be- Created something beautiful that I didn't even know he had it in him to do. It was it was amazing. It's just one piece of a larger thing, right? Blockchain is really the exciting part. It's the cryptocurrencies are are fun and interesting, and utility is you know you can debate that all day. That's just like the tip of the iceberg of what's possible with the technology that powers them. Competition, take it to its ultimate results, is going to kill us as a human species. Because now we're in an exponential global economy, where people are doing things that affect so much more than they even realize. So we need to win more as a species, as a whole, right? You know, look at the world as how can we not just grab for all the marbles, but really move to a place of let's make more marbles for everybody. Hey, what's up? It's Faye from Face World Podcast. Originally from Long Island, New York, and living in sunny San Diego, California, Brad Hart is an entrepreneur and investor. Still in his early 30s, Brad has done well for himself, and he continues to nurture the communities he built. Every week, he hosts a potluck session and invite members from his group to come together and have vibrant conversations on business and life. He's a firm believer of Tony Robbins' work. By the way, I did attend Tony Robbins' Unleash the Power Within when I was just 19 years old. I didn't quite know what was going on or was able to piece together all the information back then, but so much of it started to make sense, make so much sense years later in my mid-20s. Each year, Brad brings a substantial number of attendees to Tony's events and to continue to spread his teaching. I also accidentally found out about Brad's encounter with Tim Ferriss, author of Four Hour Workweek. Always make it a good story. I am glad Brett was willing to share it with us. How does he make his money and create the impact he has today? Blockchain, cryptocurrency, not just investment, but also a course that very successful one he's building. I'll include links of these resources on faceworld.com. I can't say much about Uh, my own experience in these areas, but Brad is incredibly honest and transparent, hence why I'm comfortable having him talk to us about this rather sensitive subject today. Yes, you could lose it all, and it's not for everybody. Rather than some other messages out there that's all about everybody should get in right there, right now, Brad helps you break it down and think about it more strategically. He has his own podcast called Make More Marbos, run by five to six people, from producers to editors to social media management. I was also invited to join Brad on his show to talk about the making of Face World. It was a warm and fuzzy conversation. If you haven't checked it out yet, finish this one first. Flip over on the description of your podcast app uh, to check out the other episode I have with Brad as well. This is a really interesting, raw, and unexpected episode I think one of my personal favorites of this conversation is when Brad opened up and unveiled his upbringing, which was very, very difficult on him, and how he really turned that around with so little external help and resources. I think all of us who have gone through hardships can really relate to it and learn from that. Without further ado, please welcome Brad Hart 
to the Face World podcast. So tell me about your process. I want to jump right into your podcast, and I have a ton of questions, but what is it like after, how do you approach your guests? What do you do after the recording is done? Like, So what I've noticed about entrepreneurship in general, which I, you know, kind of put that podcasting under the entrepreneurship umbrella, if you will, it's a tool to, to connect with people. It's a tool to network. It's a tool to reach people. It's a tool to spread your message. What I know about entrepreneurs is that we're good at uh, usually one or two of four things, and that's ideas, people, timing, and numbers. Um, I am what's called a supporter. So this is Wealth Dynamics I'm, I'm kind of borrowing from, uh, which means I'm all dialed in on people. So my question that I ask most often is who? Who is the right person that I need to know to get this outcome? Or who, who already could make this easy? Or who is already doing this? How could I align with them in such a way as to kind of jump into their flow? So you know, for the people who are good at ideas or good at timing or good at systems, that's their world. I try not to live there. I try to use my strengths so that I can be more effective as an entrepreneur. So that being said, my process looks like this. I get the right people in the right places to do the right job and I incentivize them all properly. I make sure they understand the vision. They understand the process. They understand they have a, you know, a video, a workflow, a checklist to do every single part of the job. Right. And then I also, before I hire somebody, make sure that they understand that this needs to get done, whether they do it or not. So what are the ways we can fail safe it even if they have to leave or move on to another opportunity, which is totally fine, I don't want people to work for me forever, You know, committing to, I'm gonna make sure that the next person who has to do this gets trained up, and then ideally have us be ahead of time a little bit. So for example, uh, I have a member of my team who's just really balanced and great. Uh, he's not super like to people like I am, he's more like you know able to do multiple things. So he's like a switch hitter on our team. And he's our post-production podcast specialist. I love, alliterations make more marbles he's our podcast post producer right and our podcast post producer his name is kyle kyle goes and takes all of what we do on the podcast and he edits the video and he edits the audio and he uploads to libsyn he uploads to vimeo he uploads to youtube he does all the things that need to get done also he creates the wordpress posts and put those up uh then we have savannah who's more of the podcast producer she's in charge of making sure that everybody feels taken care of she's in charge of making sure everybody has the instructions that they received all the communication that they are followed up with we send them nice notes sometimes we send a book or a gift we try to follow up you know check in with people from time to time and then finally, we have a couple of people uh, that book podcast guests for us. They reach out into their networks and they say, hey, you know, they have uh, basically a, a whole series of people who want to be on podcasts and they have a whole series of people who have podcasts and they have relationships with each of these groups so that they can mix and match as appropriate for what audiences make sense and what the goals are. And maybe they're doing a launch or maybe they have a book coming out and that's what they do. And they kind of do that. Now, the funny part is, is that as scientific as this all is, there's also an element of magic to it. And what I mean by that is that the sheer fact that I'm doing what I'm doing in the world has attracted a lot of interesting and wonderful people to me, some of which don't even ask to be paid for their services. And I actually try to pay them and they say, no, I'm just doing it because I want to. And that's actually what's ended up happening to me a few times throughout my career is I'm always blown away that, that people just really believe in what we're doing. And they have high level skills that they could be paid a lot of money for, but they really just want to help. And then they go and do that. Why do you, you think know? that is? I just think they believe in the mission. I think the vision motivates them more than the money. And something they're doing anyway, and they want to help, and they want to align with me. I'm sure they want something as well. They see the value in establishing a relationship with me, but that's not what they're looking for right off the bat. They just want to grow and build with influencers. They, they see us, maybe they see me, and again, this is just me taking myself out of myself and my ego. Then maybe they see me as like a rising star in the industry and they want to be behind that, right? It's like Tim Ferriss 10 years ago. If he could be his friend then, it would be a lot easier than being his friend now, that kind of thing. And I, I'm not making comparisons to me and Tim. I just know that he got his career really started in earnest around my age. He was publishing his first books and things and really starting to move and shake. And now 10 years out, he is who he is today. So if I continue along his trajectory, it's possible that that could be a case. And, and that could be another reason, just from a strategic point, you know, just thinking out loud. Yeah, well... So do you want to be the next Tim Ferriss? I mean, do you want to become a version of Tim Ferriss? No, I want to be the best Brad Hart I can be. 
Okay. What, what there is was that? a time when I was much younger that I wanted to be like Tim Ferriss, but now I understand that's a silly notion. I didn't understand it then. I understand it now. Tim I mean, is I, Tim. I, I love Tim. Tim's I'm, Ferris. I mean, it was a great example, right? Yeah. It's not he, Gary Vee. I think that's an example <laughs> that a lot of people know and a lot of people would relate to because a lot of people want to be like Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did. Graduated past that. I've spent time with the man. I love him to, to death, but he's doing him and I'm doing me. That's that's just the only, that's, that's all I have to say about that. Did you say that you know him personally or? We spent time together. Yeah, uh, we spent about, I met him in 2009 at a gym and random happenstance. And then we went to Africa together. Yeah, we went to Africa together in 2011 for 10 days to Kenya. And uh, we kind of got over the border to Tanzania. We spent a few few days there too. Just kind of like crossed over and came back. Yeah, it was just, it was a great trip. And I got malaria on that trip and oh, almost got geez. trapped by donkeys. And <laughs> I, was, uh, I was pretty good up by the end of that trip, but it was fun. And I got to meet my hero and spend time with them. And yeah, how did cool. you, how did you meet him other than the gym? I mean, that was even before then. Tell us how, what that experience was like. Uh, in 2009, I was working as a real estate agent on Mercer Street in New York City. You're familiar with New York. So there's a company called Bond New York. And every time I would have a lunch break, I would go and work out at this gym around the corner called New York Health and Racket Club. And one day, it turns out that I was in there and there was only two or three other people in there. And I walked past this guy and I'm like, I kind of did a double take. I'm like, hey, you're Tim Ferriss. He's like, I am. And we ended up chatting for like 15 minutes. You know, he was doing his workout and you know, he just, he was really endearing and funny and he had some great one-liners like, oh, I'm 14 minutes into my 15 minutes of fame. Now, mind you, this is in between four-hour work week and four-hour body. I was going to so, say that because his four-hour work week launched in 2007 and you met him in 2009. Right. So, so it was already like kind of a known entity. It was a known quantity at that time, but he wasn't like the 800 pound gorilla he is today, certainly. So he even didn't really buy his own hype. And I, I just thought he was really fun and differential. And we were both from Long Island. So we talked about that for a bit. And I was just a fanboy. I was just super excited to meet him. And that was kind of it. And at the end, uh, he came up to me before he left the gym after he finished his workout. And he's like, hey, man, it was really great to meet you. I hope I could see you again. I thought that was just really classy and and awesome. So I was like, great. Um, so a couple of years go by. He launches the four-hour body. And if you'll remember, he did a huge promotion for that. Like he called it the land giveaway or the, the uh, landslide or something like that, where he was way. Yeah, he was giving away tons and tons of books. I'm sorry, tons and tons of experiences and trips and prizes for buying certain numbers of books. So I reached out about one of the trips. And Charlie Hone, who's a dear friend of mine to this day, reaches out and says, I remember I was in Boston at the time. He says, hey, uh, you know, we, we're not really crazy about spending 10 days with people who are applying to do that and want to buy the books and, and spend time with Tim. But Tim already met you. He had a good conversation with you. He feels like you're not a weirdo. Uh, would you want to do one of these trips with us? You know, name which trip and we'll do it. I think the, the options are like India, Argentina or Africa. And I'm like, well, I don't know any other time I'm going to get to go to Africa. So that sounds really cool. I'm going to go do that. So I bought the thousand books. And I donated 900 of them to charity. I gave away 100 of stocking stuffers for Christmas that year. And off we went. So then fast forward to July. That was around December. I did that. Was July that a requirement, comes- buying 2,000 books and give half of them away? No, it wasn't. It didn't. The, the, the donation part, I just didn't want to take physical delivery. You know how thick that book was, right? It was like that. I took physical delivery of 100 of them. And it was like the UPS guy was cursing my name because there was boxes and boxes and boxes of books that were like stacked up in front of the garage. Uh, so the 900 went to a charity called Books for America, I believe. Um, yeah, Books for America. I think that was the name of it. Then took the write off, bought my ticket to Africa, and there we were. So uh, that was in July. And we went for 10 days. And we saw the Serengeti and we saw um, Lila Jana is the founder of Samosource and she just wrote a book called Give Work, which I really recommend. It's an awesome book. Google backed. She's been doing it for a long time. They pulled 45,000 people out of poverty by literally giving them jobs as opposed to just giving them handouts and in Africa and many other countries around the world. So we traveled with Lila and her team around Africa and we had a super fun time. We got to like, you know, see all the sites and go to the giraffe park and go on the Serengeti and see the lions and the everything. It was incredible. So it was like I I noticed, like you said, there's one thing to like interview people, hang out with people at the gym. It's another thing to get to the a different level of a friendship with your hero. And I've noticed that so much so in the past three and a half years and I love it. 
So what was your expectation of that, of, I guess, expectation yeah. of 10 fares? And was that the same or different uh, during and after that trip? So, yeah, I think I went on the trip excited to spend time with him. And I thought we really got along on the trip. And at the end, he said something to me that that really hurt my feelings at the time. He said, hey, I said I said something like a throwaway comment, like, hey, you know, I hope we keep in touch. I hope to see you again or whatever. He's like, oh, I don't really keep in touch with people that I'm not doing business with. And I said, okay. And I didn't really know how to respond to that. Like at the time I was crushed, honestly, I felt horrible. And I was really mad for a while. Like for a couple of years, I was like, that's just, why would you even say that to somebody? Obviously I'm not going to bother you every five minutes. Like I was just upset and hurt. My ego was all up in arms about it. But looking back on it, like I get it. I get what he said that maybe he could have done it with more social grace, whatever. It doesn't matter. But at the time he was just protecting his time. He's setting a boundary, right? Because at his level of success or where he perceived himself going, he realized, which I realize now, having experienced the same thing myself with like cryptocurrency, I get a hundred messages a day about cryptocurrency. I just literally can't respond to them all. And most people are terrible about having social grace around it. They just want information or they want an inside track or they want your knowledge, they want your time. And unfortunately, that's just the world we live in, right? Unlimited access means unlimited access. And I'm, I, I like to be that for people. I like to help people, but I need to get more leverage in order to do that. And I can't stop everything to answer everybody's questions all the time. So I, I get where Tim's coming from now. But at the time, I was 24 or 25 or whatever, and I, I didn't really understand that. So now I was just being honest. Yeah, he's just being honest and blunt, right? But in his way, I don't think he wanted to hurt my feelings. I don't think that was his intention. But at the same time, you know, I might have done something differently, but then at the end of the day, like I also am not him. I'm not. I didn't grow up the way he grew up. I don't value the same things he values. And again, I don't have any will will towards this. We've seen each other and spoke to each other a bunch of times since then. It's not like we cut off all contact like that. We run into each other at events and things like that. But I also know that okay, cool man. Like you know, we don't need to be buddies, right? I I say hey Tim. I introduce him to people. We we chat for a second. We catch up. And then it's he is off doing his thing. I'm off doing my thing. So I, I don't have any expectation that I need to be friends with them. Uh, and, and I also don't have any expectation that anybody who doesn't have aligned values or prerogatives should spend time with one another. If they're not if they're not the same mission in the world, they're not the same person trying to do the same things and have the same outcomes. I'm also I've also let go of that. Like I just realized that we all have a limited amount of time here. We all have a mission that we want to we want to do. And he needs the time to do his mission. He needs the energy to do his mission. And his mission is important. And it's high level. It's it's world class. But it's his mission. And I align with it in some ways. In other ways, I don't. So I'm just going to let him do him. I'm going to let me do me. I'm not going to get upset or you know whatever about that. Um, but when you ask me, like, what do I feel now? I feel like he's a man who's doing his thing in the world. And I'm really excited about that. And I also feel like if our paths align again, I think it'll be fine. I think it's cool. And I feel like if it never happens again, that's cool. I got a great story out of it, right? And I met somebody who I, who gave me a different perspective on the world than than I even anticipated. And he gave me also some great advice during that trip. He was just understanding his perspective on things, like road. So I'm grateful for that experience. That's awesome. It's a great story. Yeah, I appreciate it because sometimes when we are talking to people, there's so much active listen. There's limited amount of active listening that you're actually performing. Speaking of which, you mentioned um, about 10 minutes ago that you want to become the best version of yourself. And I want to do the same thing. What do you mean by that exactly? How do you know you're making progress? What does that person look like? So I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. And as such, over the last two and three years, I've taken on a lot of his values and not because they're his values, but because they're really solid values. And I really believe that your values shape your beliefs, shape your thoughts, shape your words, shape your actions, shape your habits, which shape your reality. And if I want a better reality, I better start back here with the values. Like, what am I actually valuing in the world, which is creating my reality through that distinction I mentioned? So... One of Tony's big values is growth and contribution. Well, two of his big values are growth and contribution. That's his theory about human needs. Like we all have the same six human needs. We value them differently, right? Certainty, variety. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know if you've been through like UPW or one of his events. I've been to 10 events. I bring them to all the time. I really believe in the work. So I really truly value that growth and that contribution. And when I'm living in growth and contribution, when I'm paying attention to what's painful, when I'm paying attention to what's pleasurable, when I'm learning from my mistakes, when I'm leading at a higher level, when I'm showing up the way that I intend to show up, when I'm not leaving bad taste in people's mouth or, you know, I'm doing the best that I possibly can, 
in every moment, which varies, right? It varies when you're sick. It varies when you're well. It varies when you're in a great state. It varies when you're not in a great state. That's me winning, right? It's progress over perfection. And additionally, I think it's really important to point out that we're all on a journey and we all have a specific thing that we're after. And part of that journey is figuring out what that is, at least to me. Like, I believe that we're all here to do something important. It's whether we take on that call to action, that hero's journey or heroine's journey is what determines the course of our life. Because, you know, having a desire is not enough. You have to be inspired. You have to conspire with the right people and you have to have it transpire in real life. That's kind of the way it goes, right? And when you have a desire, that sets a cause of events in motion. A desire's cause set in motion to give you the challenges that you need to overcome in order to become the person for whom that desire can show up and be realized. So my desire from when I was a kid was to connect with a ton of people. And I did that. I connected with some of the my biggest heroes in the world. I connected with tens of thousands of people all over the world, 23 countries, 43 states. I lived everywhere. I've talked to everybody. That was my desire because I was very hurt as a child from belonging and bullying and you know all that good stuff. But now as a 32-year-old man, I have a different mission in the world. It's to serve and lead at a high level in order to save humanity in my way, which is food, energy, water, and shelter for every human in a sustainable way. And that might sound huge. It might sound crazy. I don't have to do it myself. All I have to do is show people that it's possible, show them that the technology does in fact exist. It's not a resource problem. It's a resourcefulness problem. And then have the right conversations with the right people to be a part of the solution. I don't need the credit. I just need to be a catalyst for it to happen. How can we get closer to that ultimate aim, right? Make more marbles is a, is a metaphor. And when we've made enough marbles, the metaphor becomes complete. It's not make more marbles endlessly. It's not growth for the sake of growth. Growth without contribution is the motto of cancer. It's growing until such time as we can really provide for people at, at a basic level sustainably. You're listening to the Face World podcast. This is your host, Fei Wu. Today on the show, I'm joined by Brad Hart, entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist at Make More Marbles. Face World continues in a second. You know, what, what is your morning routine like by yourself? Um, what, what do you do when you wake up? So it's varied a lot over the years. Um, currently, what it's looked like, because I'm in a launch right now, we're doing a cryptocurrency course. It's been a lot of work and a lot of people working behind the scenes and multiple teams and, and partners. So it's been a lot of just kind of fielding incoming about that and reaching out to people and, and talking about relationships and, and things that... I've been working many, many years to establish. So in the morning, you know, I'll wake up just like anybody else. I'll put my my sweatpants on one leg at a time. I'll have coffee. I'll get started slow and work towards getting up and into the day. I do have a morning ritual. Um, um, sorry, what time do you, as, how long do you need to sleep? I wonder too. Like what time? You could be going to bed at three in the morning too. If I, yeah, no, I don't go to bed at three in the morning. If I get my eight hours, I'm pretty happy. I can survive on six. If I get any less than six, I'm, I'm in deep shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you yeah. said you have some routines, you have some rituals that you do follow in the morning. Yeah. I'm a runner. I love to run. I go to the gym. I'm a big fan of Tony. So getting into a peak emotional state is really important to me. Uh, and stay in there as much as I possibly can. I just understand that when you're in a peak emotional state or an empowered emotional state, you can make better decisions. You don't get hung up on on distractions. Your focus is more clear. Uh, when you're eating well, same thing. I try to really you know fast every day. I have a certain meal that I always have in midday that is is very specific and probably would gross most people out, but it's uh, it's heavy on like probiotics. It's heavy on on good fats. It's heavy on that kind of thing. So, so tell me about what you're like when you're hanging out with friends. What is the unwind, super relaxed, chill Buddha version of Brett? What does it look like? What What are you doing? What do you enjoy doing? What do you talk about? I surf. I swim. I go out. I love to read. I'm I'm pretty mellow. I mean, as far as when I'm by myself, but when I'm with people. I have a lot of different types of relationships. I think that's that's important to understand too. Is like 
you know, I have friends I've had for years that I'm a certain way around, you know, for 10 plus years that maybe I used to bartend with in New York City that I speak to pretty often. I have my family. My community here is is really great. It's actually really awesome influencers and and people just up to amazing, crazy things in the world. You know, people that have done a lot of personal development, people that are very spiritual. And by the community, I mean like Cardiff, Encinitas, the North County area of San Diego. So there's always an event going on. There's always, you know, something happening, somebody doing something. Some of these events, uh, most of them are community events, sharing food, hanging out, going to, you know, watch somebody play music or we do potluck dinners. I host a mastermind at my house every week on Wednesday nights and, you know, stuff like that. I just try to stay social as much as I can uh, for two reasons, because I want to know what people are up to in the, in the community. You know, I want to understand how I can help them. And because it's a great way to just mix what I love with what I do. So it, I think before we talk about money, which I think a lot of people are wondering that you're very young, that you're successful, but from- I've also failed way more than most people. I just want to get really clear on that really quick. Like I'm not, okay, my hit rate for about- failure is so much higher than it is for success. Although the success, if you if you do it right, the successes can outweigh the win- the losses by quite a bit. So let's talk about that because. I think your lifestyle as it stands today is very unusual. But, you know, one thing that hit me last time when we spoke, and I do like that the very vulnerable, very authentic side of you is the fact that you did not have very celebrated or very, you know, necessarily nurturing upbringing and you lived through a lot. And um, so tell me a bit about that. I know your mom is a lovely, lovely person. Tell us what your upbringing was like and, you know, where you grew up and what that dynamic was like. Sure. Yeah. I grew up on Long Island. It's in New York. Uh, it's where most Leo's assholes and selfish uh, single children come from, uh, which I proudly wear as a, as a determinant of who I am. I don't know. I just, I think I've delved deep enough into my own shit to understand who I really am and not take anything personally about it. It is what it is, but I'll just tell you the facts, Jack, because the way I know them and the way I've experienced them is I grew up in Long Island. Uh, When my dad was two, he was driving a lumber truck to support us. He was coming down a hill one day and the load shifted in that lumber truck, came back through the back of the cab and pinned him to the steering wheel, rendering him unable to walk for about six months. He was crawling around on a mechanic scraper and he had one surgery so that he could walk again. Oh, by the way, when he was laid up, he actually did some beautiful art and things like that. There was this one that really just haunts me to this day. It's this beautiful peacock made from pins and twine and um, thread. That's all different colors. I just remember that being like, wow, like he took this painful moment that he experienced and he's literally crawling around on a, on a creeper and he actually be- created something beautiful that I didn't even know he had it in him to do. It was, it was amazing. I just wish he kept that up. He was so brilliant in so many ways and just so troubled and deeply troubled and others. Um, anyway, so he got back to where he could walk again, but he was never not in pain again. So my mom eventually had to leave because he was abusive and he drank and it was, it was a whole thing. And even later on in life, he told people, not my mom, not me, uh, close to us that he really regretted the way he, he behaved back then. And he felt like my mom was the best thing that ever happened to him and that he pushed her away because he was in so much pain emotionally and otherwise. So for me, you know, when I started to kind of understand what was going on, I remember my first distinct memory was like I was four years old and I remember being like super excited to help my mom clean the house. And then he would come home at the end of his day and, and we'd have dinner. And like, I remember that was like the last clear memory I had of us being a family. And then my next best memory was when I was five them just fighting and screaming and, and locking me in my room and just arguing for hours. And then uh, one day, uh, my mom took me to the deli she worked at, which was just on the outskirts of our neighborhood. And there was this man I'd never seen before sitting there by the deli. And uh, his name was Tom. He came over and introduced himself. And I just remember he had this weird mustache and just felt like a cop, like he was just a really weird authoritarian energy. And I was really turned off by that. Like, I just felt like, who is this guy? Where are we right now? Where are we going? I, I just like, all of it was wrong. Like, so for me at that moment, I'm like, there's something up here. I don't understand it. But what had happened was my mom had met a new person and was leaving my dad. And I had to make a choice. I remember as a young kid who I was going to stay with. And she really wanted me to come with her. And I really didn't want to leave my dad because I knew that he wasn't going to survive if he didn't have a reason to. How old were you? I was about five or six at this time. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm forced to make that decision. I remember it kept going. That was like a running theme. Like, cause my mom left, I was still with my dad. All he could do was just handle, I can get you food twice a month. 
make sure you have enough TV dinners in the fridge, enough soda in the fridge to, to last. When the next social security disability check comes in, I'll, I'll sort it out again. But most of the time I was just, it was up to me to get up. It was up to me to eat breakfast, up to me to get on the bus. If I missed the bus, he would have to drive me. He would get really pissed. So I was always living in fear that I would miss the bus. It's probably why I still get up pretty early. Uh, but it was really up to me. I became very independent, like hyper independent. It's probably why I went out when I went out to talk to the other kids, I wasn't like them and they beat me up as a, as a result. I wasn't the smartest. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the, the strongest, certainly. And I wasn't the most socialized. I didn't really have a leg up on any social skills whatsoever. And I, maybe I came off like a jerk. Maybe I deserved all the bullying and beating up that I had, but I was also fucking six years old. What the fuck was I supposed to know about anything at that point? Who did I have as a role model? It was all me, damn it. You know, and like, I, I'm not upset. Like, I'm not, as I'm saying this, I don't feel emotionally upset, but like that little kid, like, I just wish there was somebody there to just be like, fuck, you know, like protect this little kid. And maybe now that's why I care so much about what I'm doing is because God damn it. Like I'd really had a rough deal when I was a kid. So do you remember what you were doing when you were around like 10 years old? At what point did you realize that you fell in love with something that you you did? Could be a person or could be a hobby, obviously, and that kind of redeemed part of who you are and you felt comfortable and confident. Yeah, I also know this about myself is that my childhood is very difficult to access. I'm getting better at it because I my there's eight strategies that people deal with trauma and mine is to block it. So I block out a lot of traumatic memories and stuff comes up from time to time, real or not. And I don't really have a lot of connection to the people from my past to really like put it together. So I'm doing the best I can through like a very muddy, cloudy experience. So I just want to clarify that. Uh, so around 10 years old, um, this actually came out. I was doing regressive hypnotherapy recently with a coach, a really great lady, Jessica Geist, who helped me to access some of those older memories. And two of the ones I was aware of, and one of the ones I was not aware of, was that I was still angry at my mom at 10, from when I was 10 years old, because again, she came around to try to convince me to leave my dad. And I wasn't having that. It was like, I'd rather hold on to this pain body relationship out of what I thought was being noble, as, as noble as a 10-year-old could be. But I was still angry at my mom. Anytime she acts selfish or anytime she, in my opinion, or my hallucination of her, you know, was acting independently or doing what was right for her. Uh, anytime she would try to get me to do something, I would just get really mad at her. And I wasn't like, I didn't lash out at her, but I would just get like, I would need to just spend time away from her. And, and she would want to connect with me more and I would get more annoyed and, you know, oil and water would happen. And this happened for years. I wasn't aware of it until like earlier this year. And I've been mad at my mom since I was a little kid because she wanted me to leave my dad. And she left. And all I felt was abandoned. How the hell do you sort that out as a kid? How do you even know that that's what you're feeling and why? Mm. That's something I I think you'd be surprised, though people have such drastically different paths. But at the end of the day, there's some overlapping themes. For me, I certainly had a much closer relationship with my mom, but also until I was about 30, I was able to sort things out. And actually, until the age of 30, I sat down with her and actually had the conversation about how much I suffered as a child living with my grandparents as a result of her abandoning me. And she was blown away by that statement. But I want to um, definitely catch up on that you're you're still young and you had a lot of stories. You're involved in so many different businesses. What is a quicker version of a biography or like your extended resume? Like what are some of the touch points since you're maybe around the age of 20, 22? You know, you yeah, traveled sure. and what, what you did. No problem, Faye. Yeah, I'd love to just kind of give everybody a, a quick sense of it. Just to, it's, it's so hard to capture a life in a few sentences. It just is. And anybody will tell you that. And anybody will understand that that's lived any significant amount of time is like, you've been so many different things. You've done so many different things. For me, it's it's been all over the map. Like from my first job, which was entrepreneurial when I was 12, which is like knocking on people's doors and say, hey, can I mow your lawn just to make enough money to first fix our mower and then I have extra cash around the house because I described my situation. There wasn't a lot of extra money floating around. Uh, all the way through high school, just odd jobs. I worked at restaurants. I worked in bars. I worked in um, uh, at a shooting range for a while. I ended up becoming an EMT and a bartender. Paid myself through school and, and my parents helped too. EMT. I, I forgot to ask a question. At what point did you actually leave your dad or did you ever move in and stay with your mom? It got untenable around age um, 
19 or 20, I realized I couldn't live with him anymore. But, I, but even before that, I left because when I was 16, he attacked me uh, and he had to go to jail. How did you make your, in Chinese, there's a saying, how did you make your first bucket of money or gold? So how did you, how did you do that? Um, I got pretty good in real estate. Mm-hmm. That was probably the first time. So I think the first time where I was ever like, oh, I got this money thing figured out. I was a bartender working for cash every night. And, you know, we did well, like it was cash money business, you know, in New York. And um, I had a year and change where, you know, we were making four or five, six hundred a night sometimes. I was living in Manhattan. It was great. I felt really, you know, sovereign and and well, and that was good. Uh, but then the bottom came out of the market in 2007 or 2008, I guess. And that all kind of went away. And then I couldn't get another job bartending, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. I spent two weeks looking. I couldn't get one. But I ended up on Wall Street. And I, I literally cold called a Wall Street office. And I'm like, I heard somewhere that if everybody's running out, you should be running in. And the markets were crashing. So I was like, oh, that sounds good. So I, I went and I talked to the senior broker. And he hired me on the spot. He said, OK, I'm going to pay you $8 an hour to sit in this room and dial these numbers. It was 44 Wall Street on the ninth floor. E1 Asset Management. I'll never forget. I forget the name of the broker. But uh, that's where I went every day. And I. I had to downsize, so I was living up in Harlem at the time, and I would get on the two train every day. I would go down to Wall Street, I'd get out six a.m. I'd be on the phones calling England. I remember it was like I was the managing director there, I was the managing director there, getting hung up on a lot, and then take a half hour for lunch, go get a bagel, change my tie because they would sell ties for three dollars, and I always get coffee stains on them and stuff. And then, and then from like twelve thirty to five, I would I would call America. Some people stayed and called like Australia and other places. I went and got my real estate license to kind of hedge my bets. I was like, oh, you know, I want to make sure. Because I learned from my mom, like having certifications, you know, she always wanted me to be a court officer, by the way, which is like a $40,000 a year job. It wasn't until I, I made a million and 40,000 in a month where I'm like, mom, stop asking me to be a court officer. It's never going to happen. I love you. Thank you. Stop. So yeah, that was, that was kind of my reality. And when I got my real estate license, I finished all the classes. This woman named Olinda Tertoro at Bon New York she recruited me on the spot. And I ended up meeting Bruno and Noah and they saw something in me. These two guys from Philadelphia had built this incredible business inside of like eight years. They were like the sixth largest or fifth largest uh, real estate brokerage, I think. Uh, so they were like competing with Corcoran and, and you know, all these big names, Douglas Elliman. And then I started to really get mentorship at that point. That's where I really felt like I was getting mentorship from them, from Nelson Cabasa, who I'm still friends with this day, who's my boss. Um, from Michael, who was the, the head of sales, I actually ended up going to school with his daughter, which was really fun. Uh, had gone to school with his daughter prior to that. And, and they just kind of took me under their wing and I got really good, really fast. Within two years, I had, uh, six people working under me. They gave me five promotions in two years. They loved me. I didn't even think I was doing that great a job. Honestly, at that time I was like, oh man, but they're like, well, you, you got to understand this is like the worst market we've ever seen. And you're just showing up every day and you're crushing it. And we, we love your energy. And every time I walk past your desk, you're just on fire. I didn't know any other way to be. I was just so grateful for an opportunity yeah, like that. For the first like, time. For when you were 23, 24? I was probably like 23, 24 at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your take. And then I was 24 my dad died. You're listening to the Face World podcast. This is your host, Fei Wu. Today on the show, I'm joined by Brad Hart, entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist at Make More Marbles. Face World continues in a second. How are you making the time to do everything you do? So you have a podcast, you've written books, and then you send emails out every day. But how are you finding the time to do all these things in your life? And you do sleep eight hours, which is quite a bit. And then you don't have children, so. Remember in the very beginning, I talked about the who? I'm always asking who is the right person to align with on this, this particular thing. So my job is to do the things that I'm the very best at. And try to not do everything else, right? There's 25 people working on different stuff around my different my different companies. We got an Amazon business, we got a blockchain business, we do courses, we have multiple charitable projects going on through the Greatness Foundation and others. There's a lot happening, but it's not all me. I mean, you know, that would be insane to think it's all me. That's like a very consistent theme I see though, is like people love to talk about Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Richard Branson as if they're one guy doing all this stuff. No, they got great teams of people working with them. Mm. World class. So tell me, you, you threw it out there. You said you made over a million dollars a month. How did you do that? 
in one month in 2013 in May, between the two funds that I was a part of, we did a million and 40,000 profit. Uh, how did I do that was leverage, uh, having money to manage several million dollars uh, between the two funds again, and great partners, a great team. I kind of stumbled into it, honestly. Yes, I had to do a lot of things to work to make those things align. But really, my only thing that I'm good at is having the right people on the right project at the right time, understanding what the opportunities are, making sure we have the right people, the right information, the right technology to capitalize on it. Yeah, I'm pretty smart about certain things, but I'm also smart enough to know when I suck at certain things and what I'm not supposed to be doing and that there's somebody better to be doing that. And then just really my only gift is to be able to align all these people in the same direction so that we win together, managing the risk and helping people with the upside. Dory, as you know, Dory recently published the book. And then I asked her uh, this one question about her eight, I believe, eight revenue streams. Um, what are your revenue streams right now? And I guess I would probably, if you could start with a main one, that would be a, give us a, a sense yeah, of percentage. I would or say rough cut. Yeah. the biggest ones right now are courses. We're anticipating about a million dollar launch this month. Uh, it could be as big as, as, it could be as big as five to 10 million. But we think we're going to clear a million pretty handily based on the support that we've garnered so far and the team that's involved and all that. So that's great. Is this the cryptocurrency one? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, to be determined, we're going to find out. Uh, but we're working really hard to make that a reality. Uh, we already did the beta. People are getting great value out of it. We're getting awesome testimonials. Um, and this isn't the first course I've done. And it's not the first rodeo, as they say. Uh, so we feel good about the team and everything um, that we're doing. So that's probably the, the largest thing I have on the horizon. Historically, most of my income has come through either investments, trading. I've run masterminds, like I mentioned, a lot of different paid masterminds uh, and you know, other programs, really, just you know, helping people, mentoring people, coaching people. I don't really like the term coach or life coach. People say, oh, you're a life coach. And they don't want to just put you in a little box. I don't really think life coaches... There are great ones out there, but I think any idiot can wake up one day and say, hey, I'm a life coach. I, I know, I'm I know a mentor to entrepreneurs, investors, and philanthropists. That's what I do. I want to make the pie bigger for everybody. I want to make more marbles. That's what I want to do. So I, I kind of take offense to people who want to box you in little boxes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned Coors as a main revenue driver, and I think it may surprise some people, might not, uh, some of the listeners, because it has certainly become a very popular revenue stream among entrepreneurs in general. I, I mean, I made way more money in cryptocurrency last year as an investor than I did in all my businesses, like orders of magnitude. I was just in early and made a killing on that. Like I was in Bitcoin at 100, under $100. Mm -hmm. I was looking at it when it was five cents. That's when I started looking at it. If I had invested then with the amount of money I put into a Bitcoin trading app that went nowhere, I'd be a billionaire twice over. But again, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Uh, Ethereum, I was in at like eight to $11. It's now 1400 bucks yesterday, crazy. Um, Litecoin, I was like a 30 bagger on that, 10 here, 20 there, all these little like tiny coins, they're all going up like crazy right now. I mean, you know, there's there's different ways to make money in the world. I've just had the opportunity to learn a lot of different styles and what works for me and what doesn't. Uh, and then and again, surrounding myself with really smart people who also know what's going on and, and being able to add value to those people and develop relationships with those people over a long period of time and then playing the long game is the way I make money and also the way I serve the world. Let's talk about your course. How is your cryptocurrency, your course is different. What is your strategy and sort of the, the goals and the takeaways for people who do participate? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's a collaboration between Make More Marbles and our team, Elevation Group and their team. They've had 50,000 students in the financial industry. Uh, Brian and Jake are clients, friends, ma fellow Mavericks. We're in Yonix Group together. Just wonderful people. Uh, our copy team is world-class. They just did a, a great launch last month, uh, over a million dollars in the cryptocurrency space. So I feel really good about the team. That's first and foremost. Additionally, I have my whole network of people I've been pulling in, people who mentored me on cryptocurrency, you know, people that understand the technology from its base core level. We have a security expert on the team who all he does is find holes in things that he's checking all our work as we go along, right? Because I know what I don't know, and he knows it. Additionally, we, we are beta testing it currently to make sure that it's the best possible course we can be. So we're taking everybody's feedback and making it better and better. We're giving great content, uh, but we're coming into it with the understanding that, guys, this is a risky freaking space. There's probably things that are better off for you. And we just want to help you make the best decision you possibly can for you without just getting sucked up into the noise and the hype and the hyperbole and the, the all these people out there that are just going to tell you, hey, go buy Bitcoins and all this stuff. 
like if we can just stand in front of people and catch them and just say, hey, okay, cool. I get you're excited. We're excited too. We've done well. We want to continue doing well. I'm long on the space. Like I'm, um, I'm bullish on the space. I think it's going to change a lot of things, but I also know that it could fall apart for a lot of reasons mm-hmm. and very quickly. And, and some of those reasons are completely out of everybody's control. Who are your target audience or ideal audience? You mentioned people who probably shouldn't participate, but if people are listening, they're thinking, do I qualify? Am I a good person for this? Yeah, I would say that if you understand how risky it is, meaning that you shouldn't be investing money that you can't afford to lose 100% of, we're the right place to go. If you're trying to pulse a rabbit out of a hat and and you know either fix past transgressions or just dabbling in the markets now, I'm of two minds about that because I know I'll help you, but I also know that you may not have the the muscle yet. You may not have the reps yet in life to really value what I'm going to teach. And that's not me being egotistical, I promise. That's just knowing how people are, having dealt with tens of thousands of people over the years and where they get and what they think they know until they don't, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so like, I, I'm of two minds about the second half is like, I don't want get rich quick people. People who think they're going to get rich quick, I don't want them. Go figure that out in the real world. I want people who understand that this is a process. They understand that trading and investing is a mindset that takes time to develop, that takes a lot of tuition paid to the market to get really good at. They understand that I've spent 10 years doing it. They understand that I have a track record, 3D printing stocks, Forbes, you know, hedge fund, double up. We've quadrupled the S&P that year getting in super early on crypto, you know, being able to spot trends, like that's what I'm really good at. And I also have the wherewithal to know that what the risks are I'm doing are like what what is, how to actually quantify those risks and mitigate those risks so that we can participate more in the upside. And that's what I care about most is not getting hurt first. And it's going to happen regardless. You can't plan for everything, but knowing that that's the game we're playing, that it's not just all gravy and upside and everybody's a genius and we're all making all this money. And also that it's just one piece of a larger thing, right? Blockchain is really the exciting part. It's the cryptocurrencies are, are fun and interesting and utility is, you know, you can debate that all day. But that's just like the tip of the iceberg of what's possible with the technology that powers them. This is going to change a lot of industries if it keeps going. It really just is like real estate, uh, insurance, fraud, security. There's so many pieces to blockchain. They're way more exciting than cryptocurrency. And we're going to talk about those as well. So that's, you know, the people that are interested in long on the space, that believe in the technology, that want to support it, they want to educate themselves. And they believe that mastery is a thing that's worth doing. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, uh, so how could people learn more about this particular course and just about you in general? How do they go about that? Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. I write every day on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brad Hart. That's me personally. That's where I interact with the world the most. Uh, I also have a blog and a podcast. It's uh, Make More Marbles is my brand. The idea behind Make More Marbles is I believe we can win more through collaborating than we ever could through competing with one another. And that, in fact competition, take it to its ultimate results, is going to kill us as a human species. Because now we're in an exponential global economy where people are doing things that affect so much more than they even realize. So we need to change over to collaborate, to win more as a species, as a whole, right? So we need to kind of like, you know, look at the world as how can we not just grab for all the marbles, like the hungry, hungry hippos, I got to get mine, but really move to a place of let's make more marbles for everybody. With the ultimate end goal being food, energy, water, and shelter for every human on this planet in a sustainable fashion. I don't mean freaking private jets and mansions for everybody. I mean the basics, which we already have the capacity to create. We already produce enough food in this country to feed the world for a week every day. It's mostly wasted, and there's perverse incentives that keep it from getting to the people who need it. We already have clean water. We already have energy and solar and batteries that Tesla's developing that can solve the energy crisis. We already can produce enough shelter for everybody on this planet. We choose not to or we're incentivized not to by the current paradigm that exists. And I'm not beating up on capitalism. I'm a capitalist. It's the best system we have. But like Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. I feel the same about capitalism. For the same reasons we don't use feudalism anymore, which at one time was the best system, capitalism must and can and will be, it will have to evolve into something different. And we get to create that now. We get to create better systems to serve more people. That's why I'm so excited about blockchain. That's why I'm so excited about all these technologies because these are better systems, potentially. And we still have a lot of hiccups. 
to work out. And there's going to be a lot of failures along the way. But guess what? That's what it's always been. So get in the flow with that. Get excited about it and fail forward, right? I, I've even reframed failure. Most people relate to the word failure so I can use it. But I really look at it as like we're either winning or we're learning. And how fast can we learn so that we can win ultimately together? That's it. That's what I'm trying to do. Thank you so much, uh, Brad. You're, you know, this is really great. I really enjoyed talking to you. Hi there, it's me again. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you were able to learn a few things. If you enjoy what you heard, it will be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Phase Royal podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Phase Royal podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support.